Amen. Two of my favorite songs we sang this morning. And we are coming to my favorite verses, probably in the New Testament. I I always hesitate to say that because what part of the Bible isn't your favorite? But I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 12 and 13. And if you have ever received a, a card or letter from me where I have signed it, um, you may have received a signature with Philippians 2, 12, and 13 under it because of the significant, the significant encouragement that this passage is to, to me and really to, should be to you as, as all believers. We're, we're back in the book of Philippians this morning, having completed our exposition of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And, and the theme of Philippians, we're going to be here for, for a while to... So just to remind you, the theme is the the selfless Christian life that brings joy. You you may have heard Philippians being described as the epistle of joy, the letter of joy, and clearly there's a lot about joy in it. But I would qualify that by saying the selfless Christian life is, is the life that that leads to, to, to joy. And since it's been a couple of weeks, let me remind you of where we're at in the book, in the big picture. Philippians can be outlined in, in nine parts. We're in the, the fourth part. So after Paul gives his gracious greeting to, to introduce the book, and then he teaches us about thankful prayer, he tells us about his challenging circumstances, he goes into this, the, really the heart of the, the first couple chapters, where, where he's exhorting us to to do specific things, to live in a way that, that honors the, the gospel. And we're still in that part where the great apostle is encouraging us to live a, a worthy life. And he just finished giving us this ultimate example of, of humility, the humility of Christ. And, and after the humility of Christ, then because of that, the great exaltation of, of Christ. We said that was probably an early Christian hymn. He's now going to apply that. So it's not just a, a theological treatise, it, it has a purpose. And the Apostle Paul does this all the time. If you look at the way that he writes his, his letters, he starts with the theology, and then somewhere in a letter he'll say, therefore, because this is true, then this is the way that you're supposed to, to live. So he kind of does a mini version of that, of that here. He says, have this mind in you, which was in also which was also in Christ Jesus, his attitude. He, he shows us that attitude. That attitude reveals the, what Christ did for us in salvation and then what God promises because of that. And now he's going to come back to, to applying that. So, so what? What does that mean for, for, for you? And so after this depth of, of, of humility and, and the, then up again to the Lord's exaltation, he was humbled as a servant on the cross, he'll be exalted as Lord over all creation. Paul makes an appeal to us as the, as the Lord's followers. And he begins with a general application about obedience. And then he makes a specific application about Christ-like harmony in a, in, in a world. One of my friends said that you could summarize verses 12 and 13 with a with an old hymn that you know well, Trust and Obey. You know it, right? Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust 
and obey, or no better way. Besides being a great song, that song is full of Philippian theology. Joy, which is part of the theme of Philippians, joy in the Christian life comes from faith and obedience. And that's exactly what Paul balances for us here or in this passage. In fact, these two verses are, are probably uh, two of the, uh, uh, of the clearest in all the Bible on sanctification. It covers our work for sanctification and God's work, work in it. Sanctification meaning holiness. Sanctification or holiness meaning pursuing Christ's likeness. Christ being formed in us. The Bible talks about the work in, in, in a lot of different ways. But you've probably heard the question, who is responsible for your sanctification? You or God? And you've probably also heard the answer is yes. It is you and God. You both have a, have a, a responsibility in that work. And, and that's a vital question. Who is responsible? You have a responsibility in growing in Christ's likeness. It's a vital question because the Bible tells us without holiness or without sanctification, you won't see the, the Lord. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You probably know another passage even better. You shall be holy for I am holy in, in Peter. Now that's a breathtaking statement whenever you, you think about it. Because it says holiness is required to enter into heaven. I mean, it, it feels, when you, when you think about that, holiness is required to enter heaven. It feels like a punch in our solar plexus because we know how unholy we really are. And we know our own hearts. So how can the writer of Hebrews say holiness is required in order to enter heaven when, when Scripture is clear that salvation is by grace alone? We receive it through faith alone. How is that, how is that possible? How do you balance those two things? Well, Paul shows us exactly how that's possible in these, these two verses and why you can actually rejoice in that truth. The Bible clearly teaches salvation is based 100% on, on God. Or as I like to say it, I wasn't looking for Him. He found me. But sanctification is a participatory work. It's as sure as salvation. Your holiness, your sanctification is as sure as your salvation because God promises to present you faultless before the throne in Christ. And Christ, the Bible says, will not lose one of his, of his sheep. But holiness is achieved. That process of, of becoming more like Christ is achieved by our dependent effort and because of God's determined work. God planned. God fulfilled. God initiated your justification in Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, for the glory of God alone, from the Scripture alone, he did all of that himself. But sanctification involves effort on your part. And between regeneration, when, when you get saved, as we like to call it, and your glorification, when you stand before the, the bar, before the Lord himself, you and I have, have work that, that we must do. We must trust in that finished work of Christ, and we must obey exactly what the Bible says. 
And many are confused about this topic. I mean, you could go to the average Christian bookstore or Amazon or wherever and, and, and purchase books on sanctification, and you are going to find approaches that, that, that are all over the board. Many approach uh, fighting sin or, or growing uh, either overly passive or, or preposterously presumptive. I mean, you follow any of those, it's going to be disastrous in your life. I mean, there's the, the total passive approach that it used to be called let go and, and, and let God. Or, or as that, that uh, great theologian uh, Carrie Underwood said, Jesus take the wheel version of... I mean, I mean, think about that. If you let him drive to begin with, you don't, you don't have to wreck, all right? He doesn't have to take the wheel. But with this approach, you, just, you, don't, you don't fight sin at all. Jesus will fight for you. That's, that's the idea. Disgraced pastor Tulian Chavidjan, Billy Graham's grandson, uh, promoted this. Sanctification by osmosis. If you just really, really, really rejoice in and think well about the gospel, then, then your holiness will take care of itself. You really don't have to do anything. It just happens if you think rightly about, about Jesus. And that's contrary to what Scripture says. Others think sanctification happens uh, not by osmosis, but by event. Um, event-driven sanctification. It happens when you receive the gift of tongues, Pentecostal, Pentecostalism would tell you. Or, or when you put your all on the altar, like the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. Or, or when you make Jesus Lord, like the Free Will Baptists. Or, or when you reach perfection, uh, like in Methodism. Holiness happens in all of those systems in, in one divine event where you're, you're zapped with godliness. You reach a plateau and, and then, and then you, you move forward. There's church service sanctification. You grow in church and then you wander Monday through Saturday and then you come back to church and you reseek the, you reseek the, the, the blessing. Um, Usually, in, in, in that type of model, when God really, 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 really works and when sanctification really, really, really happens is, is in the last three to five minutes of a sermon, when just as I am is happening, and you come to the altar. I had an elderly lady tell me that not long after I, I, was, I was saved, she knew God was going to do something in my life because I was at the altar every Sunday. The problem with that method is the real work of holiness happens after just as I am is done playing, right? I mean, that's when the rubber meets the road. I mean, you can bow the knee every Sunday, but if you don't walk the rest of the week, you can come just as you are, but you're going to remain just as you were before you came. Then there's the the do more and do better sanctification, or what I call the, the Egyptian model, more bricks and less straw. You hear the Bible preached, you, you feel really bad about your sin, and you're, you're rightly convicted, but then you promise to do more and, and do better. I'm going to, in my daily devotions this morning, I'm not just going to read the Psalms, I'm, I'm also going to read Proverbs. I'm going to pray for five minutes this morning rather than, than three. And when then you don't make progress, you, you spiritually whip yourself thinking that you can get more effort that way. Well, biblical sanctification is none of these, none of these models. In biblical sanctification, you're not overly passive or overtly self-reliant. If you make it all God, then, then you expect Him to take you from poverty to riches in an instant, and you're never going to grow. 
If you make it all about your effort, then you become legalistic and you never really deepen your walk at all. You must trust and obey. And that's what God's going to teach us today in verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul, in these two verses, gives us two indispensable agreements in a believer's sanctification. And he begins in verse 12 with our dependent effort that is possible because of God's determined work. That's in verse 13. Our dependent effort and God's determined work. Those are the two indispensable agreements, uh, ingredients in sanctification. All of the imperatives in the Bible, all the commands in the Bible, make it clear that your effort is part of sanctification. But if you exclude God and only make it about human effort, then, then you have a system and not sanctification. Let's look at this first one that the Apostle Paul gives us here. The first indispensable ingredient in, believers, in a believer's sanctification is our dependent effort. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This verse starts with, with the word therefore, or so then, which shows us it's actually a response. It's a follow-up from the hymn that, that, we just, that we just sang. The hymn about Christ's humility and His exaltation. And he's saying, just as Christ was obedient. Remember, let this mind be in you, this attitude which is in you. And now he's saying, don't just let this attitude be in you, let this action, these actions be in you. Just as Christ was obedient, Paul says the same standard applies to, to us. And he's going to give us a command, but, but he makes a three-phased appeal before, before he issues it. He, he appeals to them. He, he front-loads this command with, with, with sweetness, before encouragement, before, before, he, before he issues a, a command at the end of the verse. And the appeal is based on affection, Paul's affection for them, their past obedience, and then pastoral accountability. And that all leads to a peculiar command, which is at the, the end of the verse. But he starts here, this, his petition, and it's based on his love for them. Notice what Paul says here. So then, my, my beloved, which, which is a term of, of tender care. Now, they are beloved of the Lord, but they're also beloved by the Apostle Paul. Now, you don't just call anyone beloved because it, the word's rooted in relationship, right? I mean, that's why Paul uses it. In fact, if you misuse this word, uh, it could have the, uh, the opposite effect. I mean, how would you react if someone you don't know walks up to you in the middle of the mall and says, my cherished darling? What, what would you think? I mean, you'd probably take a couple steps back and say, get away from me, weirdo. What, what, you don't know me. What, what is wrong with you? But how do you feel whenever it's your wife or your grandmother or your husband, somebody that you have relationship with? It's endearing. It's a, it's, it's a reminder of, of the care that they've, that, they've, that they've poured into you. And that's because the relationship that you have with that person has enough depth to, to hold up the term, to prop up the term. Maybe a, a more applicable example to what Paul is doing here is maybe the feeling that, that you would get if I would bring a guest 
speaker in here that you don't know at all. And they, and they start the sermon and they immediately begin rebuking you and just stripping you up one side and down the other right out of the gate. And, you know, sometimes God can work through an unfamiliar voice, but typically you earn the right to, to correct someone by, by loving them first. And if you're a parent, you, you should remember that as well. Make sure you, you mingle the, uh, enough affection in with the, in with the correction that, that's there. And the Philippians don't have to guess the Apostle Paul's intentions. And so the command that's coming doesn't seem out of place. Paul planted this church, he spent time with them, and before he commands them, he starts by reminding them how dear they are to him and how dear they are to, to God. Notice also that he appeals based on their past obedience. He encourages them based on his relationship uh, to them. But also their past obedience. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. He's talking about something that they're currently doing. They've done in the past. He says, just as you've always obeyed, obey what what I'm about to say. He reminds them of their pattern uh, of obedience, uh, the word hupa akuo, meaning you're under the words. You, you keep yourself under the words. You keep yourself under the words of, of God. And this, too, has an evidence of relationship. I mean, think about what Paul just got done, got done telling them. He got done talking about how Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's saying, you've been living that way. You've been living as believers where Christ is already Lord. And at the most fundamental level of that relationship with with God is obedience. And we talked about that before. Paul says you've already been living that way. You've already been obeying the command. And he's commending them for a life that proves that they believe that, that Christ is, is Lord. G. Walter Hansen said something I think is very profound. He said, obedience is not defined in legal terms, which is the way we normally do, do's and don'ts, but relational terms as knowing Christ, being like Him, serving Him. And when the path of obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take quick shortcuts. But they will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following in the footsteps of Christ, who was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Paul's call to unflagging Christ-like obedience will not be popular in a world that so highly values going fast and having fun and so quickly rejects enduring pain and submitting to authority. But the essential characteristic of the wise who builds their house or lives on Christ is their consistent obedience to Him. And Paul's praising them. The children's song, you know it well. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly as the Lord commands and doing it happily. Paul says past obedience evidences a relationship to Christ. And it motivates you to obey in the, in the future. I mean, when you've been faced with a choice to do what you want, which is clearly wrong, or doing what God desires, and you choose the Lord, 
it's encouraging, isn't it? Just as it's discouraging whenever you falter in those moments of, of testing. Well, it motivates you to do it again. And part of sanctification is developing sanctified habits. You, you put off the old way and you put on the, you put on the new way. You, you learn to do right and not to do wrong. And, and as you do that over and over, it becomes as natural as the sin that, that, that you once did. And so Paul is saying to them, you have a pattern of obedience. Keep it up. There's one more appeal before he gets to the command. And that's an appeal on, based on accountability. Look at verse 12 again. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So there's a call to obedience, therefore obey. There's praise for their practice of obedience. And now there's accountability in obedience. Are you someone who doesn't like people nosing around in your spiritual business? Well, if that's you, Isaiah actually pronounces a woe on your life. Isaiah 5.21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and, and shrewd in their own sight. And Proverbs says there's more hope for, for a fool than you if you're, if you're that way. Proverbs 26.12, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul lays it out right here. Because accountability is one of God's tools that, that helps keep us in, in check, on, on track. I mean, you may think of it this way. Is it easier or harder to do the right thing when someone else is, is watching? Now, you may, you may do it only because somebody else is watching, and, and that's not true obedience to the Lord. You obey out of the heart. But those who desire to obey the Lord from the heart, that accountability can be, can be helpful. I mean, when do you most fall to watching something on TV that you shouldn't? When your wife or your kid is sitting right beside you? Or whenever you're alone at night when nobody else is around and it's just you and the clicker? Well, you know the answer to that. And there are certain people that it's harder to sin in front of. And some people foolishly and purposely choose friends who sin like they do to avoid conviction. Goes something like this: you, you tell me your sin, and I'll I'll tell you mine. There is no biblical call for repentance because they're engaged in the same sin, and the friends that you surround yourself with are either a barrier to sin or a basis for it. But what about someone who has victory in the very area you're falling in? It's different, isn't it? And here's someone in the Apostle Paul who has been faithful. He's so faithful that he's in prison for it right now. He's humbled himself to the point that he's willing to go to the end. And they obeyed in the presence of the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, even in my absence, continue to, to do that. Paul says, when I was with you, you had a habit of obeying, but now I'm in prison to obey just like I was there. He's not holding himself up as some holy disciplinarian. He's saying accountability is one of God's tools to help us stay on track. We should obey regardless of who's around because God is always watching, right? And that's the way that Paul appeals for this final command. He finally issues a what seems like a rather peculiar command because of what we think about salvation. Look at verse 12. Here's the command. After all the appeals and encouragements, here, here, here's, the, here's the imperative. Middle present. You keep on working out your salvation with, 
with fear and, and trembling. He says, if we hope to grow, we must put forth dependent effort. It, it's dependent because it's with fear and trembling. And it's effort because it, it's a working out of the salvation that, that we have already been given. Notice, that's what it says, the word to work out. It, it means to, to bring about or, or, or to work out. And in this case, it, it's your salvation. And, and the passage makes it very clear. This is, not a, this is not a verse about people getting saved. It's a passage about how saved people live out the salvation that they, that they already possess. Notice it's your salvation. And in particular, through their obedience, you work it out by, by living in it. By living as Christ as Lord in, in, in your life. You receive salvation at the moment that, that you're converted. But then you work that out in your life and become more and more like Christ. That, that's the goal. We call it sanctification or, or holiness. John MacArthur said working out your salvation has two aspects. One pertains to your personal conduct. That's probably what, what you think about. And the other is perseverance. It's enduring. So you are faithful to the Lord in, in daily living. The, the choices that you make. The choosing of, of, of Christ and obeying Him and honoring Him in the, in the way that you live, not your, your own flesh. You make effort to lay aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that takes work. The Bible is clear. I mean, these are three passages I just pulled out, but I, I, could have, I could have filled up a PowerPoint with them. 2 Timothy 2.2, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. Flee and pursue. Listen to the verbs. Look at verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2.11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust with war against your soul. It's a battle. It's hard. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3. It says it's a work of faith, it's a labor of love, it's a steadfast holding on to hope. And, and you could come to the other passages where Paul says, run for the prize, fight to win, beat your body into subjection, labor to the point of exhaustion. I could go on and on and on because this is the effort side of the coin. And the command says if you're just laying back hoping that God hits you with holiness, you're never going to obtain it. You need to wake up, and you need to get busy. There's a second part of working out your salvation, though. It's, it's perseverance. Not only do you obey specific things, but you endure. So there is part of sanctification where you, you bear up under life. There's those moments when God calls you to obey, which is what we typically think about. Like we think about when God really works in our life is when He convicts us about something and we obey it. But most of your Christian life, it falls in the perseverance category. You just get up every day and you live faithful to Christ. Success in the Christian life is faithfulness. You hold fast the faithful word. You don't grow weary in well-doing. You faint not. The Bible talks about that. And working out your salvation involves obedient effort and it also involves daily persistence. You might think of it this way. I mean, if you're in a war, you're not always charging the hill. Sometimes you're holding the fort. 
Sometimes you're holding a position. Sometimes you're, you're taking a new position. And both take courage and labor. In fact, the persevering part, when you're not active, when you're not, when you're not being convicted about something, those are going to be the times when Satan really can come in and, and waylay you. You're just bumping along like, you know, everything's good, and then all of a sudden, sucker punch, which is Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You've been overtaken in a fault, and that comes. If you want to grow in holiness, you must obey and then abide in Jesus Christ between those faithful choices. You won't do that perfectly. When you fail, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Your your Savior is your standing before God, not your obedience. Our standing is in His work, but the persistent effort is our work, which is why Paul modifies the command with a prepositional phrase. Look at what he says here. The command, work out the salvation that you've already received. Work it out with with fear and trembling. You're doing this work in the presence of Almighty God. And the Lord's assistance comes when when you have this this attitude. Paul is saying, work out your salvation, understanding that you're pursuing holiness under God's watchful eye. It's it's an Old Testament phrase that, that, that indicates awe in the in the presence of, of, of God. I mean, you just got done saying it. I don't even know if I can say it. You've seen the bumper stickers about JC for Jesus Christ or, or some other blasphemous way. This is the, the God of the universe. And Isaiah 66.2 says, This is the one I will, I will look to him who is humble and contrary in spirit and who trembles. At my word. It's before Him or in the presence, His presence, that you're pursuing this this maturity. In the fear of the Lord, the one that all men will stand before one day, which is what He just got done saying about Christ being Lord. And so you do this with an attitude of humility, an attitude of submission to God's presence, which is everywhere all of of the time. You don't just obey in front of people on Sunday morning. You obey in the middle of your bed at night when nobody else is around watching. You have a greater accountability partner than your pastor. You have God Himself looking on. There's a saying we use in in preaching. If somebody is is concerned about how they look or how they sound whenever they're in in homiletics or or preaching, we say, preach for the audience of one. Or study like God is looking over, over your shoulder and preach like He's sitting on the, on the front row because, because He is. Well, Paul says that you should pursue holiness. You should, you should labor in sanctification. Live your, your life in that same way. You fight against sin as if God measures your effort and live like He's watching every move because, because He is. And with that humility, he, he sets us up for the, for the next verse because now he tells us how, how you're able to, to do that. The second indispensable ingredient he gives here in a believer's sanctification is God's determined work. Our dependent effort is possible because of God's determined work. Look at what it verse 13. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do or to work for His good pleasure. 
If verse 12 says our work is the effect, then verse 13 says God's work is the cause. The reason that we work is because God is at work in us. That's what this means. Verse 12 is the command. And just to make sure that, that, that you don't misunderstand how you obey it, Paul immediately follows up with verse 13 and tethers that command, chains that command to God's work in you and in me. Our labor is dependent effort. His commitment is determined work. He will present you faultless before the throne. You will be sanctified. And if you were discouraged by your own weakness listening to verse 12, well, I'm pretty weak. I mean, I don't like these command verses. Be encouraged with verse 13 because here's God's power. God's indicative that He works makes it possible for us to fulfill the imperative, our work. And Paul starts with the little word for. Notice all of these words are important. He's going on to explain what he just said. For it is God. Here's the command. You do this because it's God. He says God is the one who empowers you to do what he commands you to do. Can you imagine trying to fight against sin apart from the Holy Spirit of God? Some people attempt to do that. And they fail miserably. You and I can do what Paul commands and God commands in verse 12. Because God is active in us. The verb says He works in. It's to put one's capabilities into operation. To be active, to, be, to operate. Gordon Fee says the, the, the root in our working out shows our work is based on God's working in. It doesn't mean that God's doing it for you. But that He supplies the empowerment. Paul says God's working in a believer precedes, the, the, precedes and empowers our work. This is not a, a let go and let God or get out of the way so God can do it. It's not passive holiness, it's active. We work because God's work. Our finite effort is powered by His, by His infinite work. Again, Walter Hansen said, Paul is not advocating a God of the gaps. Go as far as you can and then leave the rest to God. Or, or God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible, by the way. It's just the opposite. This is not holiness by inaction. But Paul does teach the absolute necessity of the empowering presence of God, not only to do the work, but to have the desire for the work. All human efforts are vain unless they're energized by the Lord. Isn't that what Psalm 127 says? You know, when we stand up here and we do parent-child dedication, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, right? They're building, they're laboring, but unless the Lord's behind that, unless the Lord undergirds that, it's, it's empty labor. You might think of it like, a, like an electric bike. Have you ever ridden an electric bike? With pedal assist, you get on the bike and you pedal just like a regular bike, but there's a little motor that's there that, that, that assists you to go up the hills and, and otherwise. There's even a boost feature that gives you a shot of power. Paul says even beyond that, God's fueling your spiritual muscles is... That, that even pedals the bike and fills your lungs with spiritual oxygen and, and the right desires. 
He says God is the initiator and the sustainer of our holiness. He's the originator of human will and human work, but it's still human work and human will. God delights to do that. I don't know how you think about, you know, asking God to help you in battles against sin or or pursuit of, of obedience or, or holiness. I mean, do you think that you have to convince God to, to help you or, or prize attention away from somebody who's a lot more godly than, than, than you are in order to hear your prayer? That's not what this says. He's committed to you in this work, and nothing can keep Him from it, not even your sin. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the, through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we would be saved by His life. I mean, I mean, what Paul is saying in Romans, I mean, if God would pursue you and save you when you're an enemy, do you think He's not going to help you after He's reconciled you? Of course He is. And Paul doesn't leave us hanging about the kind of work that God does. Look at the scope of the work that he does in you in verse 13. He says, For it is God who is at work. And what work does he do? Both to will and to do or to work of his good pleasure. I think this is one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible. I really do. It spells out the work that God's doing in you right now. He's doing this work in you right now if you're a believer. He's producing the ability to obey Him. You didn't have that ability before you came to Christ. And He's producing the desire to obey Him. Paul says God empowers your doing and and your willing. That means that, that when you lack desire to obey the Lord, you can ask God for more desire. And when you're stumbling and fumbling to obey what He says, you can ask God for, for more power, more strength. And I do that all the time. There are days whenever I get up and I don't want to do what I know is right to do. I know it's right to do it, but I don't have a desire. I don't have the kind of desire that I, that I should have. And this verse says, I can ask the Lord. Lord, you say you give me the desire to do what I know is right, even though I want at this moment to, to do something else. Increase my desire for, for, for you. And God will answer that prayer. And then there are other times when I, when I have good intentions, I greatly desire to do, I, I really, 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 really want to obey. I have all of the, the spiritual warm fuzzies that you can, that you can muster up, but, but I falter at actually carrying it out. And this verse says I can, I can ask God for strength to, to put one foot in front of the other and actually carry it out. I, this verse says that, that God will help me transfer the desire into, into actual work, into actual obedience. A believer is not someone who must grudgingly do what God asks. I can remember thinking as an unsaved man, I, I mean, I don't want to go to hell, but I'm sure heaven's probably a good place, but I, I mean, if I become a believer, then I mean, all of the fun that I'm having is actually going to stop. I mean, I don't really want to sing those kind of songs. I really don't want to have a great desire to, to read the Bible. And these people that I'm in this building with right now, they're a little strange. They're very different from me. And yet whenever I came to Christ, everything changed. Those desires changed. 
those people didn't feel strange. They, they felt like my brothers and sisters. And the book that I wouldn't ever want to pick up, I couldn't get enough of. I just read it over and over and over. And the songs that we sang, it wasn't Hank Williams Jr. or Led Zeppelin. It was, it was Trust and Obey. And what beautiful, beautiful words. God gives you new want-tos, new desires. God's Spirit produces holy desires to please Him, and that is accompanied by, by the power to carry it out. Even in salvation, you don't come against your will as if you, you've been begrudgingly caught by the Lord and, and drugged to Him, kicking and screaming. He works in you. He woos you to where you gladly come. You can't come without God working in you first, but that work in you moves you to the point, gives you the ability to respond. It's the same in sanctification, except he does that all the time. And notice where this work is done. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God, God's doing a work, and notice he's told us what the work is. It's both the desire and the ability, but notice where it's at. It's in you. It's in you. God's at work in you. His indwelling presence. You know, all the false religions in the world... They'll tell you either look within yourself or look to some outside system or a person to solve your spiritual problem. Either you are the source of power or, or, and, and God yourself, or you must assimilate some religious system. You pray a certain way, you go to a selected place to, to gain power, you, this knowledge, what, whatever it might be. But, but the God of the Bible says He is the source and He's working in you. He's not left you alone. God's not sitting on the sidelines cheering you along. It's not like like a marathon where He's there cheering you along. He's in you. He's empowering your stride, this this verse says. He's bearing you up. He's carrying you along. He's in your heart in the battle. And because of that work, we can fulfill God's good pleasure. The end of verse 13, last part of the verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His His good pleasure. Your effort, empowered by God's power, moved along by God's desires, leads to God's good pleasure. Your holiness pleases God. God gets pleasure in watching you grow and helping you do that. You might think of it this way. Um, which do you take greater pleasure in eating? A, a cake that your, your eight-year-old made for your birthday with all the lumps and the bumps and the, all the crumbs and the icing and maybe it's crooked or, or whatever, or, or one a stranger made that, that looks way better, maybe even tastes way better. Well, I can tell you the one that I'll take greater pleasure in eating. It'll be the one that Isabella makes for me. It's the same way with, with God, with our, our spiritual efforts. We fumble, we bumble, there's crumbs in our spiritual icing. I mean, we're, we're, we're a wreck most of the time. But that effort that's there, that God is up undergirding, it's pleasing to the Lord. It takes great pleasure in that. Even our feeble efforts bring Him great enjoyment and, and satisfaction. And when His mighty power is added, the, the work cannot fail. 
In other places in the Bible, the Spirit will perfect the Son's work in us, and we will be presented before the Father perfect one day, and this does please God. God doesn't just zap you with with holiness, and you're not a puppet on a string. We're responsible, fully responsible human beings, obligated to continue to work out our salvation. But God's total sovereignty is the air that we breathe and the ground that we walk on to fulfill that responsibility. And that work makes God smile. Did you know there's something else in the Bible that makes God smile? Luke 15.10 says something else that makes God smile is a sinner's repentance. And so in the work of sanctification, believers becoming more like Christ, that brings God pleasure. And starting the journey, sinners repenting, Christ brings God pleasure as well. Luke 15.10, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner repents. Salvation He grants brings Him joy. The work of sanctification He guarantees brings Him joy. And you bring Him joy if you're in one of those two, one of those two camps. And in the end, your presence with Him for all eternity brings Him joy as well. But that all starts with repentance and faith, and then it continues by trusting and obeying. And now, that work is up to you. Get you by your heads. We're going to end this morning with the Lord's table. But before we get there, I'm going to just take a moment and Prepare your heart, really respond to the, to the message. Maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged. You're putting forth lots of effort and you feel like it is two steps forward and one step back, or maybe worse. And so what the Lord wanted you to hear this morning is your effort is dependent. It's based on His determined work He will accomplish victory over sin in your life. And you just need to be encouraged that that He's not on the sidelines, He's in you, He's bearing you along. Maybe you're on the other side of that coin, maybe you're coasting spiritually, and you can't figure out why you're struggling. You can't figure out why there's anxiety or depression or whatever it it may be in your life, and it's because you're, you're not laboring, you're not fighting sin. God would say to you this morning, You need to get busy. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ at all. And you need to start that by repenting. And and if you have any inkling in your heart that that you know you're lost and you need to come to Christ, that's, that's not your work. That's God in you. The Spirit's convincing you of that and you just need to follow through on it. So Father, we come before you and we thank you that you meet us right where we're at. We also thank you that you don't leave us there. We do come just as we are, but then you make us into the image of your Son. We celebrate that and rejoice even as we take this Lord's Supper this morning. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.